Well, thank you, Bill. Um, as Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I have the, the privilege of serving as well, the associate pastor here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community, and I am thrilled that you are here today. And I hope and I trust that the Lord will speak to you as we open and examine his Bible. If you are a kid or simply a kid at heart, uh, we have Kid Connect, uh, our children's ministry director, Dave Legue, uh, supplies these every week and does a fantastic job of coming up with activities that link to the message. Uh, he's got a, a word search on one side, and then on the other side, he actually puts the main points so that you can follow along uh, easily. If you missed this on the way in and you want to grab one, they are right in the back center aisle. They're on a bench kind of off to, to my right here. And if your mom and dad are okay with it, you can absolutely jump up and grab one of those and follow along with the message. Well, would you bow your heads with me as I pray and invite God to bless our time in his word? Dear Father, thank you for this time to worship you, and thank you for this time to open your word together. I pray that as we study your Bible, as we examine it for what it has to say about the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, that these words would not be mine, but that they would be yours. I pray that you would convict every heart, soul, and mind in this room, and that we would walk out of here loving you more and serving you better. In your name we pray, amen. Saying goodbye to someone that you love and care about is one of the hardest things that we have to do as humans. Saying goodbye is never easy. And I'm sure that even as I said that, a tough goodbye from your past flashed through your mind. Maybe it was one of your siblings leaving for college. Maybe it was a parent in the armed forces going overseas. Maybe it was dropping your son or daughter off at college. First one's always the hardest I hear. Maybe it was at the deathbed of a grandparent or another family member. Goodbyes are never easy. For me, one of the hardest goodbyes from my past was Matt Jaderston. Matt was my best friend during my middle and high school years. Matt moved to my area in between our sixth and seventh grade year, and we became friends about midway through that school year. Um, our parents met at a basketball game, and I kid you not, set us up on a blind play date in seventh grade. <laughs> It's like, oh, you're Christians, we're Christians, our kids should hang out. Yeah, that happened. I had trouble making my own friends. Uh, it turned out to be a great parenting move. Matt and I became joined at the hip, and, we, and as I said, we were best friends and remained that way into high school. Uh, one night, near the end of our junior year, I got a call from Matt at a pretty late time. Uh, that wasn't totally odd or weird. We talked on the phone quite a bit, but when he asked to come over, I knew that something was wrong, and I started to get worried. Well, a few minutes later, we were sitting on my porch, and he broke the news to me. His dad had accepted a new job, and they would be leaving over the summer. My best friend was going away, and I had to say goodbye. Well, at the time, I didn't feel any goodness or see any benefit to the news of his moving. All I felt was pain, sorrow, anger, and a deep, deep loneliness. 
You know, our difficult experiences with goodbyes beg an important question. They're never easy, but can a goodbye ever be good news? In our passage that Bill read just a few minutes ago, John 16, verses 5 through 15, Jesus makes an incredible statement. And he answers that question with a resounding yes. Jesus announces his going away to his closest friends, and then he actually says that his goodbye is good news. Now, put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples for a minute. You have given up everything. You have literally walked away from your entire life to follow this man. And in that process, in the three years that you've been with him, you have become closer to him than you ever thought was possible. You have come to call him friend. You have come to call him Lord. You know, there's this one time in John chapter 6 where Jesus preaches a hard message. And many of his followers can't handle it, and so they walk away and desert him. And Jesus, he turns to the disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, it's always Peter, right? He steps up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Isn't that great? I mean, you can almost picture Peter as Jesus asks them, do you want to go away as well? You can almost picture him kind of looking around as people are literally walking away from Jesus. And it's just the 12 disciples left. And he kind of steps up and he's like, um... We have no other options. (laughs) You're it, Jesus. You're it. And now, in John 16, Jesus, he's the one that's saying to these disciples that never abandoned him, at least to this point, that never abandoned him, Jesus is the one that's saying he's going away. He's the one that's saying goodbye. How would you feel? That's the scene in John 16. So can you feel it? The pain, the sorrow, the anger, and the deep loneliness of the disciples. And yet, Jesus makes this incredible statement. In verse 7 of our passage, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? How can that be? How could that statement possibly be true? How can this goodbye be good news? Well, let's take a look at the rest of the verse. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the helper is why Jesus' goodbye is good news. The helper that Jesus refers to in this verse is the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity Stated simply, the reason that Jesus' incredible statement was true is because the Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. Now, if we're honest, that statement is a bit hard to fully believe. And I don't mean that we are actively denying that, kind of going around and saying, ah, the Holy Spirit stinks. No, we're not doing that. But I think there's a lot of times where we more subtly deny this statement. 
Maybe you've been there with me. I've caught myself thinking, if only I could be with Jesus in person to talk to him and to hear from him, then I wouldn't doubt. Then I wouldn't have any issues trusting him and surrendering to him. If you've been there with me, and you don't have to raise your hands, but if you've been there with me, then what we're doing in those moments is we are saying the Holy Spirit is a consolation prize. We are saying that the Holy Spirit is somehow second billing and is somehow second best to Jesus. But remember, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. So if Jesus didn't believe the Holy Spirit was a consolation prize, then I don't want to believe that either. And to get there, we have to answer three questions from our text this morning. One, who is the Holy Spirit? Two, how do we know if we have encountered the Holy Spirit? And three, how do we work with the Holy Spirit? First, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, As you may know, the Holy Spirit can be a bit of a tough topic. Whether we've been around church or not much, many of us are probably carrying some baggage with regards to the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe you've caught some of those religious television programs where the Holy Spirit seems to make people do some weird things. (laughs) Or maybe you grew up in church and you heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the Holy Ghost, which definitely gave you nightmares. (laughs) Or maybe you grew up in a more charismatic church tradition where the Holy Spirit was talked about a lot. Or maybe you aren't a Christian, so you haven't given much thought to the Holy Spirit. This morning, we can be coming from a lot of different places. And wherever you are coming from, whatever baggage you are carrying, I hope we can agree that what God says about the Holy Spirit is more important and more true than anything we could ever say. What God says about the Holy Spirit is more important and more true than anything we could ever say. So we must stick to and dive into our passage. Well, as I mentioned above, Jesus says that his goodbye is good news. In verse 7 of our passage, he says it is to the disciples' advantage that he leave, for if he leaves, the Holy Spirit will come. And this begs an important question. Why did Jesus have to go in order for the Spirit to come? Well, the answer is that you and I, we have deep, fundamental problems. And you and I, we need deep, fundamental help. Deep, fundamental help that actually enables us to live as we were meant to live to love selflessly, to give generously, to not fear anything, and to be like the God who made us in his image. Simply put, we can't get there by our own power. When we try, we fail. Every single time. And then what happens is, when we fail, we want Jesus to be near us in person, right? I mean, to solve our problems, to answer our questions, to make everything wrong in our lives right. 
And that's why we all had thoughts like the one I mentioned before. If only Jesus were here with me right now, then I would trust him and believe in him. Then all my problems would be solved. Then I could live as I ought to live if Jesus were just here with me right now. But remember, Jesus did not come to help us manage our problems. Jesus did not come to help us manage the problems in our lives. No, he came to remake a world without problems by going to the cross and defeating the ultimate problem, death. Do you catch the important difference between those two things? When we approach Jesus and look at Jesus as he's only going to be a problem manager, somebody that we need around us to sort of just fix the the next problem that crops up, we've missed the point. Jesus did not come to manage our problems. He came to remake a world without them. He came to remake me. He came to remake you. And he came to remake every person who places their faith and trust in him. And how does Jesus do that? How does he remake us? By the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus was realistic. He knew that while eventually all of our problems would be destroyed upon his second coming, right? That's when the problems and sin and death, it disappears forever. He knew that while that was coming one day, he also knew that until that point, we were going to face trials and tribulations in this life. He knew that trouble was going to come. He knew that we would have problems. In fact, just a few verses later in John 16, Jesus says this to the disciples. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus tells the disciples and us to take heart. Why? Because in him, through the Holy Spirit, we will experience peace. This week, as I was thinking about the peace that we experience through the Holy Spirit, I was reminded of the eye of a storm. The eye of a storm, if you recall, is a small area of mostly calm weather at the center of a strong tropical storm. It really is an incredible phenomena, relative peace in the middle of chaos. I found a pretty fantastic picture of the eye of Hurricane Isabel taken from the International Space Station. Isn't that incredible? I think that's the image that Jesus wanted the disciples to have when he told them about the peace that he would experience, that they would experience through the Holy Spirit, relative calm in the middle of chaos. Jesus is saying, yes, things are going to be hard and difficult. Yes, it will be like an intense and powerful storm that is whirling around you. But take heart, for I will send you the Holy Spirit who will help you to have peace in the midst of that storm. He will help you find the eye of the storm. Well, the question that is probably now on many of your minds is how? How is the Spirit better at bringing peace, better at helping me and us find the eye of the storm? 
Well, the key to answering this question is to understand the phrase that Jesus uses here in John 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. As we've already seen, Jesus says that once he leaves, he is going to send the disciples the helper. In Greek, the word the helper or the phrase the helper is paraclete, paraclete. What is the meaning of this phrase? The word is translated into English in a variety of ways. Helper, in the version we heard read this morning, other versions render it advocate or counselor. And the variety of translations is helpful as the different options help to paint a fuller picture of the word. The helper is a good translation. You gotta hear me say this. At a fundamental level, the Holy Spirit helps us as Christ followers. But how does he help? I want to parse out two different nuances of the word. The Holy Spirit, as our paraclete, helps us by being first our advocate, our advocate. In non-religious writings around the time the Bible was written, paraclete was almost always used in a legal sense. In other words, someone who helps another in court, whether as an advocate, a witness, or a representative. The New Testament usage of the word paraclete is broader than just this legal sense, but it is still useful for understanding its meaning. Did you catch it? The Holy Spirit, in a very important and significant way, works as our defense attorney, advocating for us. Another angle of the Holy Spirit as our advocate is that he provides us with counsel. In other words, he guides us and shows us the way to go. As we'll look at in a minute from our passage, our advocate, the Holy Spirit, is also called the Spirit of Truth. That's verse 14. And as such, the Spirit of Truth counsels us out of lies and into the truth. Second, the paraclete is our comforter. Our comforter. Not many newer English translations render the word paraclete as comforter, mainly because in today's English we mean something a bit different by it. In fact, when I popped that up on the screen there, comforter, uh, many of you probably thought of the warm blanket that you had to fight to get out of bed from this morning. Like, oh yeah, my comforter sounds really good right now. Uh, that's not what it means. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is more than a blanket. <laughs> In Old English, the verb to comfort meant to strengthen, to give sustenance to, to encourage, and to aid. That is what the Holy Spirit does when he acts as our comforter. It's not just that he gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling like a heated blanket, but that he becomes your very sustenance, the very air you breathe. And when that happens, when the Holy Spirit becomes the very air that you breathe, then we are strengthened, we are encouraged, we are aided. We, in the Old English sense of the word, are comforted. Well, at this point, many of you may be thinking, well, that sounds excellent. I need an advocate, and I certainly need to be encouraged, strengthened, and sustained. But how do I know if the Holy Spirit has done that to me? In other words, we are led to our second question. How do we know if we have encountered the Holy Spirit? Well, look back with me at our text, starting in verse 8. And when the Helper comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Stop there. Earlier, I said that when the Holy Spirit acts as our advocate, this means that he acts as our defense attorney. But as these verses reveal, the Holy Spirit also can function as our prosecuting attorney who comes to convict the world and by extension comes to convict us. So he can function both as our defense attorney and as our prosecuting attorney coming to convict us. And I know, I know, convict doesn't sound so great. You wouldn't be too far off if you thought, how is the Holy Spirit coming to convict us part of him being our helper? Doesn't sound very helpful that I get convicted. Well, importantly, the word here, conviction, carries with it the idea of bringing to repentance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is carrying out this work of convicting us for the purpose of us turning from our evil ways so that we can run back to God. He's not just convicting for the sake of convicting. And while the Holy Spirit's work of convicting us may not feel good, I've already mentioned this morning that the Holy Spirit isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It may be painful, but the Holy Spirit's work of conviction that leads to repentance truly is a helpful act. Let's briefly walk through each one of these phrases. The Holy Spirit will convict concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. First, concerning sin. How do you know if you have encountered the Holy Spirit? If you realize that you are the problem. If you realize that you are the problem. In other words, if you realize just how bad your sin really is, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit has started to take root in your life. You know, a few weeks ago in this pulpit, I, I preached on sin. I, I had a joke. I couldn't work it in, but it was something like, uh, Bill wasn't a big enough sinner to preach that message, so they had to bring me in. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Uh, I preached on sin, and I shared, I shared a brief story about G.K. Chesterton. He's a famous Christian author, and famously, he was once asked what was wrong with the world. Uh, he answered with two words. You may remember this story. He said, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. And what I said then was that Chesterton was a man who got it. He was a man who understood just how bad his sin was. He was a man who realized that he was the real problem. He was a man that had been convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit. Is that you today? Is that your story? Is that your testimony? If I said to you, what's wrong with the world, would you say, I am? If you do say that, then the convicting work of the Holy Spirit has started to take root in your life. Now, what about the phrase at the end of that verse? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Jesus speaking, referring to himself. Convict the world concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Well, think about it with me. 
the root of our sin problems are that we struggle to believe in Jesus. We struggle to believe in Jesus. Do you struggle to love those who are different than you? It is because you don't really believe that Jesus, though he was God, loved you even when you were estranged from him. Do you struggle to be generous? It's because you don't really believe that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor. And you, though you are poor, might become rich. Do you struggle with pride? It's because you fail to see and believe that Jesus, who knows more than you and more than me, used his position to humbly serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I could go on. Let me ask you, do you realize that you are the problem? The second thing that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning is righteousness. Righteousness. You know you have encountered the Holy Spirit if you know you need to repent of even your good deeds. You know you have encountered the Holy Spirit if you know you need to repent of even your good deeds. Now I know you're thinking, wait a second, <laughs> hold up. I may be on board with you about having to repent of my sin. I know that's a bad thing, really bad. I, I'll repent of that. But now I have to repent of my good deeds as well? What's up with that? What is up with that? Well, uh, a couple years ago, I was at a coffee shop. I love working in coffee shops. You'll probably bump into me up at Coffee Girls or down at the roastery. I just love working in coffee shops. And I was at Caribou, sad face. They, like, closed all the Caribous down outside of outside of Minnesota, although there is one, like it's just a drive-through somewhere in Kansas City. Anyway, so I'm in a caribou, I'm working, I'm near the church that I was working at at the time, and, and I'm, I'm working on some stuff, and an elder from that church, from my church that I was working at, happens to be there as well. He's there, and this elder, this particular elder, is a fireman, and at that time he was studying and working and preparing for the fireman's lieutenant examination. And if you don't know much about the, the firefighting world, that's a pretty big deal. Um, he was up for it, and so he had to pass this big test. So we got to talking about it, and, and he told me, he said, I, it's a really hard test. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, really confident that I'm going to get selected, and I just don't have that high of hopes about it. And he seemed really beaten down. And so in front of me, I saw this Christian brother who was struggling. And so right there in the, in the middle of a coffee shop, in the middle of Caribou Coffee, right in public, I offered to pray over him. So we bowed our heads and I prayed and, and uh, hopefully encouraged him in that way. And no shame whatsoever. What a good deed, right? Wrong. <laughs> Later, as I was reflecting on it, um, the Lord, I believe the Holy Spirit, revealed to me my true motives. Did you catch the important detail in the story? The man, the firefighter, he was an elder in my church. It, it doesn't hurt to pray over the person and show how good of a Christian you are for someone that approves the budget that pays your salary, does it? And I'm sure there was a mix of actually wanting to care for him as a Christian brother, but as I reflected on it later, I was appalled because I realized the deeper reason that I was doing that, that good deed, was so that he would think I was this awesome Christian. I know 
that I need the Holy Spirit to convict me of my righteousness, of my good deeds. Because there are so many times, and, and if you're honest, I hope I'm not alone in this, that, that you can, if you stop and think about it, and if the Holy Spirit convicts you in this way, you can realize that there's a lot of times where even your good deeds, they have an element of this selfish motive to it. We need to be convicted of that. There's this Christian rapper named Propaganda, and he has a spoken word poem about the gospel. The whole thing is just excellent, and I would highly, highly recommend it. Uh, in the video, he has a line that just nails me every single time. I'm going to read for you a section of the rap, and yes, please, I, I encourage you to praise Jesus that I'm not going to try to rap it. <laughs> Here's what he says. This is us. Heap up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. Your silly list of good acts. Take them and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you can give it a shot, but I suggest you throw away that list because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. Even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. Like I said, that lyric hits me right in my chest every time I watch the video. Because the example from my life in the coffee shop with the elder from my church, that's only one of many. Like I said, I know I need the convicting work of the Holy Spirit so that I can repent of even my good deeds, of even my righteousness. How about you? Is that your story? The third thing Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of is judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know you have encountered the Holy Spirit if you see Jesus for who he really is. You know you have encountered the Holy Spirit if you see Jesus for who he really is. At the end of the day, there are only two responses to Jesus. There are two ways to judge him. Jesus says in this clause that the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world, Satan, he's made his response to Jesus. The ruler of this world, and by extension, the world itself has made its judgment. The world mocked Jesus. The world shamed Jesus. The world saw Jesus as a waste. The world crucified Jesus. But the Holy Spirit helps us to make a different response, a different judgment. The Holy Spirit helps us to see that something else was happening on that cross 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit declares the ruler of this world judged, not Jesus. The Holy Spirit says Satan and this world is judged. The Holy Spirit says death has been judged. Pain, sorrow, trouble, these are the things that have been judged. This is what the Holy Spirit says. And the Holy Spirit says, everyone who sides with that judgment, with the judgment of death and, and sorrow and trouble, whoever sides, whoever's on that team, they will be judged as well. That's what the Holy Spirit says. You know you have encountered the Spirit. When you judge the cross, the ultimate sign of death, torture, and cruelty to be the only source of your life. Let me say that again. 
You know you have encountered the Spirit when you judge the cross, the ultimate sign of death, torture, and cruelty. If you judge the cross, that cross, to be the only source of your life. So what group are you standing with? Have you seen Jesus for who he really is? Have you judged him correctly by the power of the Spirit? Well, at this point, I I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't incredibly excited about encountering the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Even though I argued earlier that the Holy Spirit's convicting work is a vital part of how he helps us, let's be honest, it doesn't feel good. I mean, that, those three, it's like a triple punch. Bang, 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 right? Doesn't feel good. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit does more than just his work of conviction. Remember, as I said, he's the paraclete. He is our helper. He is our advocate. He is our comforter. Let's transition to our third question and answer, how do we work with the Holy Spirit? How do we work with the Holy Spirit? The wording of this question is chosen very intentionally. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. As a Christian, who is responsible for you becoming more like Jesus every day? Is it you that's responsible for that, or is it God that's responsible for that? Well, the answer, as you may know, is a bit of a paradox. It's both. It's both you and God. The Apostle Paul lays this out in just a few words, a tight, compact sentence in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, work out, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? You work, we work, because God is working. We're going to look at three ways we work with the Spirit. First, work with the Spirit to kill your sin. Work with the Spirit to kill your sin. Now, as we saw earlier, the Holy Spirit shows us that we are the problem. But he does not do this to simply make us feel awful about ourselves. Remember, he's not just convicting us for the purpose of convicting us. It's to bring us to repentance. Hear what Andrew Murray had to say about why the Spirit convicts us and shines light on our sin. God never speaks to his people about sin except with the purpose of saving them from it. Mm. The same light that shows the sin will show the way out of it. The same power that breaks down and condemns, if humbly yielded to and waited on in confession and faith, will make it possible to rise up and conquer. Amen. What a freeing promise. The Holy Spirit isn't some angry parent who's pointing out your failures. But, as Jesus says in verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And, as the spirit of truth, I mentioned this earlier, he guides us into all truth. In fact, the, the, the phrase there is actually all the truth. Isn't that great? Just all the truth. <laughs> Where does the spirit lead us? Into all the truth. Into all the truth. Isn't that such a powerful idea? Our sin leads us into darkness into lies. Left to our own devices, we run from truth. 
In fact, we sprint from truth. But the Holy Spirit, the helper, our advocate, our counselor, he leads and he guides us into truth and away from sin. And to get there, we have to work with him to kill our sin. Two quick ways that we can work with the Spirit to kill our sin. First, we must listen to the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, do you ask God to reveal the blind spots in your heart? When you sit down in prayer, is one of the first things you do say to him, God, show me what I'm missing in my life. Show me where my blind spots are. Speak to me by the Holy Spirit and and, and help me listen to him as he shows me these gray areas, these dark areas that I don't see right now. Are you doing that? Are you actively sitting and listening and waiting for God to speak to you about what you're missing in your life? Above all else, to listen to the Holy Spirit is to read the Bible. I think we get this idea that that listening to the Holy Spirit means we kind of shut everything off, we have to be in darkness, and we're just sitting there, and we're sort of like, you know, maybe meditating, cross-legged, and just waiting for like an audible voice to speak to us. And God, in that he can do anything, certainly can speak to you that way. And if he does, you better listen, right? But above all else, to listen to the Holy Spirit means to read the Bible. After all, verse 13 of our passage, if you think about it, describes how we got the Bible. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. Then the Spirit guided them into the full meaning of that truth, And then the disciples wrote that truth down, inspired by the Spirit, so that we may listen to the Spirit every day of our lives. So are you reading the Bible? Are you listening to the Spirit? The second way we can work with the Holy Spirit to kill our sin is to let the light hurt. Let the light hurt. You know, what, you know that when, when you're in a room and it's dark and someone doesn't warn you, or even if they do warn you and the lights turn on, and it's like, ah, the light hurts. Let the light hurt. Let the light hurt. The spirit of truth is going to point out our false ways. If you, in your prayer time, start asking God through the Holy Spirit to point out where you're going wrong, guess what? He's going to do it. He's going to do it. When that happens, when the Holy Spirit points out your mistakes, your failures, invite him in. Embrace it, even though that's hard. When you see something in Scripture that offends you, your first thought probably shouldn't be, well, maybe I'm just understanding this wrong. Your first thought should be, what is wrong in me that this is offensive? What is wrong in my life that I'm coming to this and and the Holy Spirit is speaking to me? Or when a friend or your spouse... (laughs) Point something out in your life if they do it in a humble and honest way. Maybe that's the spirit. All the spouses in the room went, amen. (laughs) Yes, I am the spirit. No, no, no. But you know what I mean? I mean, with Ashley, she does that to me all the time. My wife, Ashley. It's like, yep, Holy Spirit just spoke through you to convict something in my life, to show me a way that I I was off the path. I was off the path. So when that happens, don't fight back. Don't resist it. Let the light in and let it hurt. It's okay, the Holy Spirit is working to make you more like Jesus. Work with him as he does that. 
So that's how we work with the Spirit to kill our sin. The second way that we work with the Spirit is by serving the mission of Jesus. By serving the mission of Jesus. In verse 14 of our passage, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will glorify him. A primary theme of this passage and of the whole book of John is the perfect unity between the three members of the Trinity. In John, Jesus consistently talks about the oneness that he experiences with the Father. And here in John 16, we see that a key work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. A couple weeks ago in his sermon, uh, Pastor Bill, he defined what the verb to glorify means, because it's kind of a churchy word, right? And so he really broke it down, I think from the Jesus Storybook Bible. He said, to glorify means to make a big deal about, to make a big deal about. So if the Spirit glorifies Jesus, what that means is that the Spirit makes a big deal about Jesus, The Spirit makes a big deal about Jesus. And if we're going to work with the Holy Spirit and advance Jesus' mission, then we have to make a big deal about him. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit makes a big deal about Jesus. So for us to continue that mission, we have to make a big deal about Jesus. Well, that then should lead you to another question. How do we do that? How do we work with the Spirit to make a big deal about Jesus? And the answer to that question is the third way that we can work with the Spirit. Work with the Spirit by loving others for their good. Work with the Holy Spirit to love others for their good. The first step in glorifying Jesus with the Holy Spirit is to love others for their good and for their benefit. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he talks about fruit. Well, not just fruit, but importantly for us, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you've heard the fruit of the Spirit before, then you know that the first fruit listed is love. That's significant. The first fruit listed is love. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. You see, one of the other things that the Holy Spirit does is give really good gifts. Spiritual gifts, like teaching, preaching, hospitality, faith, and others, the list goes on. We didn't talk about spiritual gifts today. Some of you maybe thought we'd be addressing it, but we didn't talk about it because they weren't a part of the passage in John 16. Uh, You also may know that spiritual gifts are a bit of a sticky subject. Uh, There are people that love Jesus a lot that are on different uh, places. They're in different places, and they disagree on the topic of spiritual gifts. But one thing, or many things, but one of the things that's really clear from the New Testament is that the gifts are for the benefit of other people. That comes through very clearly. And when Paul is discussing them in 1 Corinthians, he says something really fascinating, right? He discusses them in in chapter 12, and then he discusses them in chapter 14, and what's chapter 13? It's the love chapter. It's the love chapter. So he bookends spiritual gifts. Right in the middle, he sticks love. And this is what he says. He says, You can have all the gifts, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. You're nothing more than a a ringing gong. It's just annoying and, and, and doesn't have any purpose. You're nothing. You can have the gifts, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. Significant. Love is the first step in working with the Spirit to make a big deal about Jesus. So don't underestimate the power of loving people for their own good. Don't underestimate the power of writing an encouraging note or letter. 
And for those of you that are younger, don't underestimate the power of sending an encouraging text or email. Don't underestimate being in a community group and showing up every week to do life with people no matter what. Don't underestimate the power of truly asking how someone is doing and then carving out the time to listen to their response. Don't underestimate the power of being kind to waiters and waitresses or opening doors for other people or simply smiling and saying hello. Don't underestimate the power of service projects or missions trips or eating lunch with the kid who sits alone. Don't, under any circumstances, underestimate the power of Holy Spirit love. And don't go it alone. This isn't a try harder message. You just need to buckle down and love people more. Remember, when we try to go it alone, we fail every time. No, this message isn't just to try harder, but it's to work with, it's to, I'm, I'm imploring you to work with the Holy Spirit, to partner with him as he makes you more like Jesus. He makes you more into a person that loves all the time. When you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, Holy Spirit, help me work with you today. Help me to kill my sin and help me to further your mission, Jesus' mission, by loving people for their benefit. If you do that, you'll be surprised at what happens. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, and thank you that both you and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. We need that deep help, Lord. And truly, the Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. Help us to remember this and help us to work with the Holy Spirit to love you more and to love others more for their benefit. In your name, I pray, amen. Well, here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community, we celebrate communion most weeks. It's a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven by the work of Jesus on the cross. In communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We get to see and taste and touch the good news that we have a right relationship with God once again. If you're new here, I, I want to explain how we do this. It, it might be a little bit different for you. We have four stations in these four areas of the, of the church, and uh, you don't have to be a member to come and partake. You just have had to uh, accept the good news of the gospel, uh, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Uh, come and gather in groups of three to six. Uh, hopefully the communion servers will kind of give you some direction on, on if you should go or come. Uh, and then when, when you come, uh, take the bread, dip, and then wait to partake just with your little group there. Wait until everyone's received so that you can partake at one time with the group down uh, in, in your station. Um, if uh, you need uh, gluten-free elements, those are in the back uh, uh, to my right. Um, and if you haven't embraced Jesus yet and you're just sort of checking out church and checking out this Jesus thing, uh, we're really glad that you're here. And we hope that you find that this is a safe place to explore and ask questions. Uh, use this time to ask Jesus to show himself to you. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to you. Jesus is pursuing you. Ask him to help you watch for him. Well, on the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And in the same way, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come now to the Lord's table to see, to taste, and to touch the good news of the forgiveness of sins.